Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Rugby Lineout podcast. And uh, the last one I'll be doing before uh, myself and the family, with much excitement, um, wary of the bed bugs and all, head off tomorrow night for Paris and the two quarterfinals this weekend at the Stade de France. Um, like I said, after which we are traveling down to the south of France. Uh, we'll be in Montpellier while the uh, uh, semifinals are going on. And although there's the semifinals are actually being played in Paris, we're just going to soak up the atmosphere down in Montpellier and enjoy the games down there in a country that uh, I expect will be pretty rugby mad at that point, uh, especially if things go well for them this Sunday in the Stade de France against South Africa. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Rugby World Cup, the pools are over. Uh, it does, like I said last week, feel like he's been along pool stages. But, um, you know, apart from a couple of lows, I think they've been absolutely enthralling. I think one of the things that's really stood out is the fact that um, despite the very sort of lopsided nature of the, of the draw, um, and a lot of matches that, you know, especially when the, the, the fixture list was announced, you'd looked at them and you thought, you know what, those are just going to be dead rubbers. Um, they weren't. There were some amazing games that kind of really, uh, you know, really shook things up a bit, culminating in, you know, the end of the pool stages. Um, what an end to the pool stages, that game between Fiji and Portugal. But yeah, you know, like some of those those matches uh, of tier two sides, particularly, um, which, you know, they're kind of going to be a walkover on paper, ended up being these sort of 80 minute edge of your seat thrill rides. It's it's been great. Um, and above all of that, you know, the, the, the scenes in the stands at the stadiums, the fans, they've been phenomenal. It just looks fabulous. And I... I'm not going to, I, you know, I just, I have to say it. I can't wait to get there on Friday morning um, and, and soak it all up. It's going to be fabulous. But yeah, the, now the tournament heads to the business end and there is still so much to look forward to. So like I say, I'm kind of in the midst of packing right now. So this is going to be short and sweet and probably kind of follow the vibe of what I will be doing in, in, in France once I get there. Um, like I say, the blog may take a hit. Um, you know, my wife kind of joked with me that, uh, I could do a blog after the two semifinals in Paris on the, on the train down to Nice on Monday morning. Uh, <laughs> maybe a bit optimistic, uh, depending on especially how much celebrating went on, but we'll see. But certainly, um, I will try and do two podcasts at least while I'm over there to, uh, just kind of, you know cash in on the vibe and, and give you give you guys a vibe of, of what's going down there and my experiences of how it's it's uh, capturing the mood in France as it, as it were. But anyway, on to the business at hand and obviously the biggest talking point um, and obviously the one I'm most excited about because I'm going to be there um, are the two semifinal uh, quarterfinals taking place in um, the Stade de France in Paris this weekend between New Zealand and Ireland and France and South Africa. And you may have noticed just now, I kind of Freudian slipped there. I said the two semifinals uh, when they're actually quarterfinals. But let's be completely honest here. These are the semifinals. These two games are the semifinals. Um, 
you know, these four teams are such powerhouses right now. The two winners from the two games in Paris, I find it pretty hard to not see them as the finalists two weeks later. But we shall see. But um, yeah, for me, for all intents and purposes, I'm kind of regarding these these two games in Paris as the actual semifinals. Um, could these games be any bigger if they tried? Um, I think, you know, it is a, a perhaps a negative side of the, the lopsided nature of the draw that you have the four best teams in the world um, going through into the quarters, which means the two of them are going to be knocked out by the time of the semis. But um, yeah, I, I think it's it's an absolutely massive occasion. Um, and it will, to a certain degree, I think, make for the two winners the the actual real semifinals a week later kind of almost like a a formality um but we'll see uh iron and new zealand kick us off on saturday um and it's interesting there's some real similarities there between the clash um between them and then france and ireland uh, france and south africa the next day um you know you've got in both cases a three times world champion going up um against a side that's never won the world cup uh, in Ireland's case, never even got past the quarterfinals. But certainly, you know, in France's case, you know, they've been at the final three times. Um, but it's interesting that in, in both games, you have a three times world champion up against someone who's who's never who's never won it before. Um, and I think, you know, with that, who's under the bigger pressure in terms of France or Ireland? You know, France have, have never won it. They're the hosts. The pressure could all arguably all be on them. Ireland, the number one side in the world, but yet never got past a quarterfinal. There's so many, I think, psychological variables uh, at play, um, particularly for France and Ireland. But I think, you know, France, host nation, won their pool. Uh, they must surely be favorites, I think, over South Africa on on Sunday. Um, you know, got a bit of a wake-up call from Uruguay in the pools, um, but for the most part looked relatively comfortable uh with the task at hand um, and even so far relatively at ease with the, the weight of, of being the host nation and the expectation that comes with it. Um, even the loss of, of Antoine Dupont, who now has made a miraculous recovery, um, didn't really seem to, to, to phase them much. Um, you know, apparently due to France's remarkable uh, abilities uh, medically, uh, Dupont will be available and will be playing in the game against South Africa. Though I think like a lot of people, um, oof, I'm nervous about that. Like I, I every time any kind of physical, and it's going to be a big physical game, make no mistake. Anytime Dupont gets hit, I, I'm going to be wincing in those stands, I think, along with everybody else. Um, huge bravery on his part, but wow, I really, really, really hope he doesn't get hurt again. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how much time he actually spends out there, depending on how things are going. Um, but you know, I, I think even if he does end up on the bench, if he doesn't last the distance, this French team is so good. They're still not going to miss a beat. You know, let's face it, in, De in Damien Penault, they have the tournament's leading try scorer. In Thomas Ramos, they have the, uh, the tournament's leading point scorer. You know, um, it's interesting, though, if you look at these two sides head to head, there's not much in it. Um, you know, um, obviously, South Africa's goal kicking is a concern. But 
um you know it's i don't know but as i say if you look at it on paper france does seem to be the 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 more complete side south africa does have an edge though in terms of defenders beaten interestingly enough uh they have more defenders beaten than france and they also have an edge in, in dominant tackles um but you know other than that i i think given south africa's problems off the kicking tee and how well disciplined france are and that south africa struggle with that at times it's hard to argue against france getting the job done um what South Africa are going to have to do, though, is just use that physicality to, to really stifle French cre creativity. Now, it didn't work against Ireland, um, and they also have to make sure that their, their discipline is just absolutely watertight so that, you know, Thomas Ramos doesn't get to use his kicking tee, while at the same time, South Africa are going to hope that they don't need to, to use their own tee very often. Uh, but I think for me, the biggest question is, who are they going to put in at fly half, Pollard or uh, Lebach? Um, and what center part of the ship are they going to go with, especially now that Lucan Yuam is now available? Um, I, you know, I think for the fly half question, as, as, as even though, you know, Pollard is the more reliable goal kicker, although Lebok didn't do too badly towards the end of the tournament after the South African game, um, I think Lebok offers more ability to create new space. And I think you tie that skill up with Lucanu M's vision and control in the midfield. And I think South Africa will stand a better chance of unlocking that phenomenal French defense. So we'll see. Um, you know, I think out wide, South Africa can be just as lethal as France, but they need a conductor to, to allow those wide channels to breathe. And I think for me, it's, it's a Libok M uh, Lucanio am access to make that happen in this in the first quarterfinal though um on saturday i think ireland like you know like france they dominated their pool but i think unlike the hosts they never really appeared to get rattled in any of their games so far they got one or two niggling injury concerns going into the game uh, most notably it seems that james ryan is is out but otherwise they're in remarkably rude health physically going into um, this World Cup knockout stage, which they've never been in the past. They've always been carrying an ambulance full of injuries heading into the knockout stages. So we'll see. Um, you know, there's the whole psychological thing. Um, but I think, you know, with the, the biggest green army they've ever seen at a World Cup belting out zombie, I think that psychological thing, it's all in their heads now. Um, they just, they look assured and adaptable and they look confident. So fingers crossed for them. It's interesting. If you look at the heads to head on, on paper, New Zealand actually looks sharper um, and stats don't often lie, but I think you just have to look at those Irish performances against South Africa and Scotland. They were clinical, efficient, and ruthless. And I think against South Africa, they just simply found a way to absorb everything South Africa threw at them. Um, despite you know the the Springboks dominating a lot of the statistics in that game at times, but they played a smart game. But apart from that misfiring lineout in the in the first half, they still found a way to win. And I think if you look at a lot of Ireland's performances in the last year, that's been the consistent theme. And that's why I think they're a different team this time around. They simply find a way to win based on their their togetherness and understanding of the game plan that they're trying to play on on that particular day.
I just think, you know, they're really good at playing their brand of rugby and adapting it to, to suit the needs of each new opponent they face. And, you know, that final performance against Scotland, apart from where they sort of switched off for five minutes, allowing Scotland to score two tries, which I'd, they're not going to switch off like that against New Zealand, was probably one of the most complete Irish performances I've ever seen. So, you know, it's a smart team. Everybody's singing from the same song sheet. They're going to be hard to beat. But by the same token, I'd argue New Zealand is rapidly rising to the challenge. You know, they've scored more points and tries than any other team. But I'd qualify that with the fact they've really only been tested once in the tournament opener against France. To write them off would be beyond the height of foolishness. Um, but I think, you know, and they also know that many people are, are seeing them as, as underdogs on Saturday, which is not a position they're very familiar with being in. And I think they actually kind of like that and the, the kind of pressure it takes off them. You know, compare that to Ireland, you know, that there are going to be 60,000 fans in that stadium expecting them to finally break their their dismal record of failure at, at knockout stages in the World Cup. This is a really good all-black side. I just feel as a unit, they simply aren't clicking the way Ireland are at the moment. And to be honest, that's the only difference I can find between the two teams. Um, I think the analogy is kind of like New Zealand is playing for something they are, they've already owned and they just want it back again. I mean, it still means an enormous amount to them. Whereas for Ireland, this is the chance to turn their wildest dreams into reality. So I don't know. I'll let you decide who might be feeling the most pressure and weight of expectation and, and how it might affect them on the day. Meanwhile, down in Marseille, some actual quarterfinals are really being played. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, I may be proved wrong, but I think it's safe to say that Life after the quarterfinals for the, the four quarterfinalists down in Marseille may all end in tears come the semis, but, um, you know, they're going to give us a good show in the process. You know, as the easy side of the draw and based on what we've seen so far, um, I, I just, I can't see any of these four teams going much beyond the quarters um, as they've got to face one of the four super teams in pool A and B. Um but on the flip side of that, I would say that pools C and D have definitely been the two the two most competitive groups in the tournament. Um, and I, but I think with perhaps the exception of Wales and at times Fiji, there's been some pretty mediocre performances um, from the the four quarterfinalists on this side of the draw. Wales were the first to qualify, uh, and we'll get the party started going in Marseille on Saturday against an Argentinian side that for me really failed to fire the imagination until that final game against Japan. Um, you know, Wales have definitely been the surprise package of the tournament in relation to tier one countries. I mean, everybody had written them off before the world cup, but I think they're, they're looking the best they've been in years since that tense opener against Fiji. And they're, you know, they're boasting some very impressive numbers stats wise. And I think they've rapidly become, at least up to the semis, the, the tournament smoking gun. That demolition of Australia was definitely the icing on the cake. Um, and, you know, despite a scrappy performance at times against Portugal, this, this Welsh team looks very settled and comfortable with, with the task at hand. Now, it's a bit like New Zealand. Nobody's really paying them that much attention, and they, they kind of like it that way. I think, you know, there were a lot of fears that, you know, their reunification this year with, with former coach Warren Gatland would, would you know, give a resumption to the boring but effective, you know, Warren Ball type of game. Um, but I think Warren Ball 13.0, uh, this version of it, it's, it's 
definitely not stodgy and predictable. I like it. Um, their opponents on Saturday, Argentina, I think have been anything but awe-inspiring uh, until they play Japan uh, in that do-or-die fixture on Sunday. Maybe that's what they needed to finally kind of spark them into life because I think prior to that, to be honest, I was struggling to find a pulse in this Pumas team. I think there's still a ways off the mark required to beat a Welsh unit that's really kind of humming right now and has definitely looked the most consistent of all the sides in pool C and D. But, you know, there's the conundrum with Argentina. You know, they, they happen, they seem to play their best rugby when it comes to the knockout stages of a World Cup. Ask any Irish supporter that, they'll tell you. Um, how they're going to cope with the loss of Pablo Matera, who looks pretty well to be out of the tournament for the rest of the tournament with injury. Um, you know, he has kind of provided all the fire, a lot of the fire rather, in a lot of those famous recent Puma victories. And I think without him, Argentina is a bit of an unknown quantity, despite their wealth of talent. So we'll see. But definitely a um, hard one to call, but definitely an, an intriguing fixture. England, like Wales, um, despite most of us expecting them to crash and burn out of the tournament in a ball of flames, I think it's surprised everyone uh, by winning their pool with a round to spare. But I think for me, the caveat there is the quality of their of their opposition at times made them look good. You know, their first opponents, Argentina, just simply failed to show up, um, allowing England to win by, you know, a very solid kicking and defensive game. Japan, kind of like Argentina, it's almost like they didn't read the fixture list properly and thought they were playing England, uh, Chile that weekend instead of England. Um, so England got a second very comfortable straight win. Chile were very brave, but nowhere near the mark required to take on um, a tier one side at that stage, especially after two tough games. Um, and they ended up being, you know, it was their final game and they ended up being nothing more really than just a, a training run. Um, and also Owen Farrell was, was back in the fold. Um, although I thought against Samoa, he was really, really poor. So it'll be fascinating to see what role Farrell plays in the knockout stages. And to be honest, maybe he won't play any role. I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens there. Um, but yeah, my, my overriding sense of England is they're through to the quarters without having really to work for it. And I think that was highlighted by that Samoan game at the weekend. You know, they, England still look a poor and rather rudderless side with no real attacking game. Um, you know, it, it was dismal from England. It, it was either, I don't know whether it was complacency or a lack of imagination or, or a combination of the two, but you know, they play like that. They'll pay dearly against Fiji again. Um, and we've already seen what Fiji can do to them at Twickenham last month in, in August. I think, you know, of all the teams, this tournament, England's the side I found the least convincing. And I think the one who's benefited the most from opposition weaknesses rather than their own strengths. We'll find out on Sunday, but I'm not holding my breath. England's opponents, Fiji, on Sunday in Marseille, have also left me kind of frustrated. I think they're a really classy side, but consistency is just not their strong point. That opening game against Wales was one of the best of the pool stages. And if that final pass had gone to hand for Semi Radradra, then we could be spinning a different story here. But I think... Uh, you know, the good news with that was that loss seemed to motivate them for that epic win over Australia, and they, they just outplayed the Wallabies from start to finish. But since then, it's all kind of fallen off 
The wheels have fallen off a bit dramatically. Um, I can't figure out if it's fatigue or a loss of momentum. I don't know. But that almost two-week sort of downtime between the Australian game and their encounter with Georgia didn't do them any favors. Um, you know, I thought their set piece work, which has improved so much in the last four years, was downright sloppy against Georgia. And they were lucky to win that game. And if Georgia had been more disciplined, they could have lost that game. And then we would have had a very different end to uh, Pool C, um, which Australia could have benefited from. Who knows? Um, and as for that final pool game against Portugal, which saw, you know, um, Portugal win their first ever World Cup game. You know, it was it was like a sense of deja vu. Um, it was almost like we were watching Fiji's demise at the hands of Uruguay in the 2019 World Cup all over again. Now, it didn't pan out that way. Um, you know, they did put in a slightly more cohesive performance than they did against Georgia. But they just seemed to really struggle with 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 Portugal's incredible spirit and bravery. Um, you know, Fiji just kept getting rattled by a side that simply refused to lay down and refused to kind of abide. They kept, you know, Portugal kept going off script from from the one that kind of Fiji had prepared for them. So, yeah, they're, they're going to have to adapt to that against England. Um, but I think hopefully with two back-to-back games under their belt and a bit of a wake-up call in both, they'll be a lot sharper than what we saw. Um so I hope so. I mean, an early exit for, for the Fijians, I think, would be be as sad to witness in many ways as Scotland's uh, unfortunate premature exit from the tournament. On that note, Australia and Scotland, you know, sad to say goodbye to one of my favorite teams far too early. And as for Australia, well, it's back to the future, I think, for them. Um, you know, the lot you know, my heart has to go out to Scotland. The lopsided nature of the draw meant that they were doomed to failure from the start. You know, there was lots of talk about their ability as a very skilled but maverick side to upset the giants in the pool of death. It just wasn't to be. Um, and in, especially in those two games, which they needed to win against, or at least one of them against South Africa or Ireland. You know, they South Africa didn't allow them to play. Um, and we just didn't see any of the promise Scotland was supposed to bring to this World Cup. You know, they thrilled us against Tonga and Romania, but that final match against Ireland, Ireland gave them very little to say. You know, there was a five-minute lapse of concentration from Ireland in that final quarter, um, and if it hadn't been for that by Ireland, Scotland would have come out of that game with, with zero on the board. So I think it's, you know, Scotland's lack of consistency and inability to be competitive in the set pieces it continues to dog them in big games like that. And it means sadly that they're, they're not quite fit for the task at hand on this, the biggest stage of all. So it was back to the drawing board for them, despite their, you know, wealth of world cast talent. Um, and yet just another world cup cycle to try and find the missing pieces. I'm really sorry to see them go. And I had their pool been slightly easier. I think they would have found the confidence and the consistency to go deeper. But we'll have to wait, sadly, till Australia 2027 to find out. Talking of Australia, uh, I think they only have themselves to blame um, for their early exit, their first ever exit from a World Cup before the knockout stages. Um, There's lots of talent in this side, but it was too raw and too inexperienced for the task at hand. You know, add that to that, a coaching change that was always going to add even more uncertainty into a side already struggling with confidence. And this World Cup was never going to end well for them. Um, That it would end in such a catastrophic failure, however, will leave Australian rugby 
in a position of vulnerability that I don't think it's ever been in before. You know, much like, you know, England right now, rugby in Australia is poorly managed, coached and administered. And it's also increasingly becoming a minority sport up against serious competition from league and AFL. Um, it's going to be hard to recover from the disaster of this World Cup. Um, you know, I just don't know. It's it's super rugby sides are uncompetitive unless they play each other. And, you know, internationally, Australia have only managed a 30% win rate um, in this World Cup cycle, having won only 14 of their 43 matches since 2019. So, yeah, with those kind of numbers, they don't look good. Um, I, I just think, you know, things were starting to look up, I thought, with Dave Rennie. But then once Australia, Australian rugby hit the panic button and, and ditched him and took in Eddie Jones, I think they've gone skydiving without a parachute. Um, that was a big miscalculation. So I'm really not sure. You know, the Wallabies look set to become a side like Scotland. You know, they have a license to thrill but they're never really going to be a contender on the big stage unless something dramatic happens. And then ending up, Portugal. Uh, that was the most fantastic conclusion to the, the pool stages. That final game of the pool stages against Fiji, between Fiji and Portugal, man, was that a great advertisement for Tier 2 countries and how we've got to keep the momentum gained in this World Cup going for them. Um, you know... Portugal were worth their inclusion in this tournament from the opening match to that glorious win over Fiji at the end. And it's made all the more, more remarkable when you think about it. They were the last team to qualify for this World Cup. So, you know, uh, Coach Legisque has left an incredible legacy. Um, and yeah, I just hope that Portugal can build on this. I think what's been really extraordinary about Portugal is that despite only winning one game, we never saw the outrageous score lines that other tier two teams suffered. You know, Portugal never lost a match by more than 20 points and they drew with fellow tier two opponents, Georgia and beat Fiji. So, you know, and of the two teams tipped to win the pool, Australia and Wales, you know, they managed to keep the score difference to 20 points in both games. Um, so yeah, it's, their, their heart and desire was fantastic. For me, the crowning moment of that game against Fiji was hooker Mike Tadger deep in his 22 going, oh my God, I've got to clear this and kicking it to touch beautifully. I mean, it was just epic. And I think that just summed up everything about this, this Portuguese team. They just never, never quit. And they played for each other. They played with some incredible heart, some incredible skill at times. It was a joy to watch from from start to finish, and uh, you know they've been they. I'm going to vote for them unequivocally as my team of the of the pool stages. Um, I loved every minute of Portugal's campaign. I loved their fans. It was just it was just fabulous and so rightfully earned. You know they they. It was so great to see them rewarded at the end um, like that. So kudos to Portugal. Uh, fantastic tournament guys really well played longing to see more of you in the next next four-year world cup cycle and then finally to sum up you know i think what's really impressed me about this world cup is it's had its real share of, of classy moments um you know the world hasn't isn't a fun place right now every time you open your newspaper there's there's climate change there's the depressing war in ukraine that just seems to go on without end there's nagorno karabakh there's what's just going on in, in the Middle East right now. But the World Cup has been a really welcome distraction to all of that for these 
fabulous 80 minute sort of sound bites. And I, it just shows once again that that the human spirit and the camaraderie that, that could be present in sport is still such a powerful force. You know, there's been lots of moments in the tournament that have exemplified this. Um, but for me, I think, you know, Springbok captain Sia Khaleesi has been really an ambassador for our sport, but his country as well. You know, his passion for his country and his people shines through in everything he says. He knows the, the difficulties that South Africans are, are facing at all levels. And yet he remains so positive of, and supportive of his teammates' struggles on the pitch and those of his fellow citizens back home. You know, I think if there was ever a player who embodies the pride and responsibility of playing for your country, that then Khaleesi showcases that to the full. You know, there's humility to his words and actions, but also a strength that many, including I think some of our world leaders, could do well to emulate. There was images of, you know, like the South African and the Tongan team playing, um, all joining together on the pitch after the game, which South Africa won, and, and joining together in a group huddle and prayer on the pitch. That was, again shared values and a really beautiful moment but last but not least going back to that portuguese match and you know fijian coach simon Louis going into the portuguese team dressing room giving them kit and then everybody you know congratulating uh portugal and then them in turn giving them a big hug and saying you know we're all cheering for you and we'll all be praying for you in in, in your campaign through the knockout stages so yeah show me another sport that does that um both before and after the whistle. Uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one. So that's it for the pool stages, folks. It's been a great tournament. I'm off to France. Like I say, I'll do my best to, to keep you in the loop, but take care, stay safe, and enjoy what should be a fantastic round of quarterfinals.